But please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. As I mentioned this morning, we are considering the holy conception and birth of Christ. Specifically, we're considering that phrase in our Apostles' Creed, how Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's word to us. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If you please uh, turn the page in your Bible to Luke chapter 2 then, in verses 1 through 7. Here we see that the birth of our Lord Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration under Quirinius, who was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came forth for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he again write this word upon our hearts this morning. You now turn in your order of worship to our confessional reading element. We'll be confessing together Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 14, question and answers 35 through 36. If you please, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 35 asks, what does it mean that he, that is Jesus, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit, 
from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. Question 36 asks, how does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Well, as you know, our catechism has three main sections, guilt, grace, and gratitude, and we are currently in the grace section. We're considering God's grace towards us in the person of Jesus Christ. And more specifically, we are considering this, this, this section within the section of, of grace, true faith. True faith. That's the response that we should have to the person of Jesus. Now, what are the three elements of true faith? Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. We have to know certain things. We have to assent to those things, meaning we have to actually uh, believe that they're true. And then lastly, we have to personally trust, rest, receive these things for ourselves. So knowledge, assent, and trust. And according to the catechism, what are those things that we need to know, assent to, and trust in personally? The Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a, uh, a very concise summary of the basic content of true faith, the things that we all are called to, to know, assent to, and personally trust in. And this Apostles' Creed is a Trinitarian document, which means it, 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 it's, it's, it's centered around the three persons of the one God, God the Father, God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. And we are looking at God the Son. We've looked at his, his names his name Jesus, his title Christ, his identity as the Son of God who is our Lord. And now we are considering the work of Christ, which begins in his holy conception and birth. Now this, this, this doctrine of the, the virgin conception and birth is a doctrine that we know is very important to the Roman Catholics. Any of you have Roman Catholic background, you know that uh, this is a central element of, of their piety. They profess... Many things about, about the Virgin Mary that we don't find in the pages of Scripture, they, they confess her immaculate conception that she was conceived apart from original sin. They confess her assumption into heaven. They confess that she is co-mediatrix, co-mediator with the Son. And these are things that originate in the teaching of the church as opposed to the teaching of 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 scripture, which they believe they can do because they have legislative authority as the church. So they have a very, very high view of scripture, a high view of Mary, I should say, a higher view of Mary than, than, uh, than scripture itself seems to, to indicate. But then we as Protestants, sometimes we don't quite know what to do with Mary. And, we, and when we think of Protestantism in terms of the liberal, the liberal segment of Protestantism. They've sort of cast aside this whole doctrine as, 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 as mythology. It's crazy to believe that a, a young girl 2,000 years ago would have conceived a child, the son of God, apart from natural means. No one's going to believe that today in our modern world. That can't be replicated. And so they cast that aside and just focus on Christianity as purely a humanitarian cause. 
then that leaves us as conservative Protestants, and we fall in between these two poles. Roman Catholics, who have a very, very inflated view of, of Mary, and then the liberals who kind of cast it aside and put no weight to this doctrine. And so we rightly confess in the Apostles' Creed that this is a core element of our Christian faith. Christ was conceived and born by the Virgin Mary. Um, and today I'd like us to consider how we as Protestants, confessional Protestants, uphold this, this very important um, element of our uh, Christian Catholic, that is to say, universal faith. So if you look at question answer 35 and 36, question 35 is, is, explains this doctrine. What do we mean when we confess these words in the Apostles' Creed? But then question 36 very helpfully applies it to us. How does this doctrine benefit you particularly or personally? You can tell that this document was a document that was meant to be taught and, and preached within the churches. Explanation, application. So I'd like us to, to briefly consider both of, of these questions and answers. So first, let us just consider what, what do we mean when we confess that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary? Does anyone know uh, where, in the, where in Scripture is the first time we hear about this doctrine? This in particular, this doctrine of, of Genesis. Genesis 3.15, uh, we do hear the statement of the gospel that the seed, the promised Savior, is going to come through a woman, generally speaking. So yes, it, it comes in Genesis 3.15, but specifically that, that, that Jesus is going to come from a virgin. Where do we, where do we, where do we first learn that? Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7, verse 14. The prophet says, uh, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, a number of, of scholars have recognized, uh, both liberal and some conservative scholars have recognized that the Hebrew word that Isaiah uses here for virgin is not the specific Hebrew word uh, that was oftentimes used for virgin. Rather, this Hebrew word that's used for virgin is a, a broader word that generally refers to a young girl. So some have capitalized on this and, and have seen and said that, see, the Christian tradition have perverted the, the, the true interpretation of, of this verse because every translation is an interpretation. It's a commentary on the original text. But when we look at this term, even though it's a broader term uh, for a young girl, there's many times, even in the Hebrew Bible, where this term is used to, yes, refer to a young girl, but to refer to a young girl who's also a virgin. So just because this term is used doesn't mean that Isaiah isn't referring to a virgin because words have a wide semantic range, meaning there can be multiple meanings to a specific word. And so uh, we see other instances in our Hebrew scriptures where this word is still referred to, uh, refers to a virgin. Well, when we come to the New Testament then, two of the gospel writers narrate and speak to the virgin conception and birth. Matthew and Luke. Matthew speaks of this from uh, Joseph's perspective, and then Luke speaks of this from Mary's perspective. And Matthew in particular, he narrates the birth of Jesus, and then he says all this 
uh, took place in order to fulfill the words of the prophet, and then quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14. And both Matthew and Luke use the specific term for virgin in the Greek language in, in both of their accounts. And we confess that the New Testament authors interpret infallibly the Old Testament. And so we clearly see that Matthew and Luke interpreted Isaiah 7.14 as referring to the Virgin Mary who conceived and gave birth. Well, I'd like us to consider uh, primarily here Luke's account because this is the account that comes from Mary's perspective. And in the passage that we read from Luke chapter 1, uh, we encounter this, this, uh, this scene where the angel comes to Mary and announces, announces what this extraordinary thing that's going to happen to her. The angel comes to Mary and says that you will conceive and give birth to one who will be great, one who will be called the Son of the Most High, one who will be the true King of David. Imagine how shocking that would be for, for Mary to, to hear that. And her question is probably the question we all would have if we were in her shoes. She asked, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel then responds, well, this isn't going to be a natural conception and birth. It's going to be a supernatural conception and birth. And then the angel points to which member of the Trinity the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who will come upon Mary. And the Holy Spirit describes the power of the Most High overshadowing her in her womb. So this is not a natural birth. This is miraculous. This is supernatural. This is in the same category as creation ex nihilo, as Jesus' resurrection. And so... Uh, we see that the Spirit is, is the one who brings about, the one preparing a body for a human nature for, uh, for the person of Jesus. Now, uh, J. Gressa Machen, he was one of the staunch defenders of theological orthodoxy in the uh, early part of the 20th century, and he wrote a, a pretty big, big work on this topic from a historical perspective, uh, the virgin birth, and he notes uh, that uh, he says this, he says, there can be no doubt that at the close of the second century, the virgin birth of Christ was regarded as an absolutely essential part of the Christian belief by the Christian church in all parts of the known world. So yes, we, we believe this doctrine not because of the testimony of the post-apostolic church. We believe this doctrine because of, of the revelation of scripture itself. Isaiah, Matthew, Luke clearly teach this doctrine. But it also gives us confidence when we look at the testimony of the history of the church. That from its very earliest of days, they saw this as being one of the cardinal doctrines of their faith. And it was accepted all around the world. Now you'll notice that in question and answer 35, it speaks about the two natures of Christ. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, think that the person of Jesus began his existence at the moment of conception. Now the person of Jesus has existed from all eternity. Rather, at this moment, he took upon himself a human nature. So the person of Jesus, of course, has a divine nature, 
But at this moment, he took upon himself a human nature. So this was the beginning of his human nature. So that once he, uh, once he was born, we can confess and say that he at the same time was being nursed at his mother's breast while upholding this universe by the word of his power according to his divine nature. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the doctrine that we're called to embrace. We're called to believe, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, why? It's an interesting question to, to ask the why, uh, to ask why behind our doctrines, even behind the ethics of the Christian, um, of Christianity. Why? Is this arbitrary? Why did God choose to bring his son into the world this way? Did he just wake up one day and say, I'm just going to do it this way? Why? I'd like us to consider uh, two things in particular, uh, two theological points that, that, uh, that, that show us that this isn't arbitrary, but makes sense in, in light of God's plan of redemption and salvation that's been revealed to us throughout the pages of Scripture. So the first, thing that, uh, first reason why God chose to, to, to do it this way is because it testifies to us that a new chapter is unfolding in redemptive history. The age of the Spirit is dawning. Now, if you look in, in your Bibles and notice how the Spirit is described here. The Spirit is one, the one who comes upon Mary. The Spirit is equated with the power of the Most High. And this power of the Most High overshadows Mary. Now, if we think about that language in light of the Old Testament, our minds should go back to Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, creates all things. And then verse 2, in the midst of this chaos and unformed matter, we see the spirit hovering over the face of that which is formless and void, over the deep. And it's in that context that God's speaking. So God's word is effectual because the spirit is hovering over this matter and making it effectual. Every act of the triune God is an act that comes from God in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see that on display in creation. God speaks in the Son and it's made effective by the power of the Holy Spirit. The reason why God can say, let there be light and there's light is because the Spirit was there hovering over uh, the face of the deep. And then Exodus chapter 40 is uh, a statement about, about the tabernacle. And the glory cloud, the glory cloud, which was the presence of God, and, and, and this glory cloud is described as, as settling upon, hovering, settling upon the tabernacle, and thus filling the tabernacle with the glory of the Lord. So again, we have a reference to the, 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 this, this presence of God overshadowing, hovering over the tabernacle. And so when we come to Luke chapter 1 and we, we hear the statement about the Spirit overshadowing the womb of Mary, our mind should think of the creative work of God. Just like in creation, when the Spirit was hovering, that was the context by which God created all things. And so the Spirit, as he is overshadowing, hovering over the womb of Mary, we should be prepped that a creative work of God is about to happen. The Spirit is preparing a body a human nature for our Lord. But we also should think that this is going to be the way in which God tabernacles among his people. 
in light of Exodus 40. The glory cloud was hovering, overshadowing, settling upon the tabernacle. And so too now, as the Spirit creates the human nature of Christ, this is going to be the definitive way in which God dwells among his people. In the person of Jesus Christ. As you go on to see uh, the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry, one thing that you'll notice is that the Spirit is accompanying Jesus at every step of his ministry. The Spirit is the one who, who, who created, brought about this human nature, and the Spirit is the one who accompanies Jesus during his earthly ministry. And then in, in, in Jesus' upper room discourse, in John 14, John 15, John 16, we have a number of statements where Jesus says that the Helper, you know, once he leaves this earth, he's about to leave his disciples, and he says that the Helper, once he leaves the Helper, who is the Holy Spirit, will be sent to them. And this Spirit's job will be to remind them everything that Jesus has said. Jesus also says that this Helper, this Holy Spirit, will come, and he will take what is Christ's and make it ours. It's the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit who, who, who formed the human nature of Christ in the womb of, of Mary, who accompanied Jesus throughout every step of his earthly ministry, is the Spirit who then takes this Christ once he ascends to heaven and brings him to his people. And so now, as we live in the age of the Spirit, the Spirit's main job is to apply Christ in all his benefits to us. To illuminate the words of Christ and what he's done for us in his earthly ministry to our hearts and minds. It's the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit is the one who unites us, unites us to this human nature which was conceived in, in Mary's womb. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have a real communion participation with the risen Christ who is in God's right hand. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. I've said before that, that the Spirit's main job is to shine a spotlight upon, upon Christ. J.I. Packer makes this illustration. And when you think about a spotlight, when it's working properly, you don't think about the spotlight. You think about that which is illuminating. And so, too, when the Spirit's doing its work, it, it fades the background, and the focus is upon Christ. Christ. Thus, the virgin birth reveals to us that we live in the age of the Spirit. So just as in creation, God spoke in the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, so, too, in new creation, every Lord's Day, God continues to speak in His Word through the Son, by the power of His Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in 2, Timothy, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, he rejoices that the Word came to the, the church in Thessalonica, not just the bare Word, but the Word as it's accompanied with by the power of the Holy Spirit, that Spirit that was hovering over that which was formless and void in creation. So as a Reformed church, we have a very high view of the Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, opening up God's Word, preaching and teaching, would be void. The Spirit is the one who makes it effectual to our hearts and lives and applies Christ to us, unites us to Him. Thus the virgin birth reveals to us that we live within the, in the age of the Spirit. But this virgin birth also testifies to the fact that salvation is a divine work. It's a divine work. Now, if you were a Jew living in the Old Testament and someone asked you, how has God saved you? What event would they have pointed to? I hear whispering. Passover. 
Exodus. Yes, that, that, the Exodus and uh, by extension, uh, Passover as well. But think of, think of the Exodus. They're in bondage to Egypt. And who delivers them from Egypt? Did they deliver themselves? No, this was a divine work. God comes miraculously showing his power to Pharaoh and splits the Red Sea and, and delivers them from bondage in Egypt, which, which typified our, everybody's bondage to, to sin and condemnation under the law. And then ultimately brings them to the promised land. That's a divine work. And so if you're a Jew, looking back to the Old Testament, anticipating God's new exodus, greater exodus that will come with the Messiah, you would expect this also is going to be a divine work. And the holy conception and birth of Christ is a divine work. There's not a natural explanation for what happened to Mary. It was supernatural. And furthermore, there's this great theme, especially in the Old Testament, of God continuing his plan of salvation through the wombs of barren women. So you think of a number of, of, of people in, in the Old Testament. You think of Sarah, Rebecca, Hannah, Manoah, um, um, Samson's uh, mother. God continues his plan of, of redemption through, through the wombs of, of barren women. And, and so we see that idea being continued with, with Mary. Now, you might say, well, she wasn't necessarily barren. It's true. But in another sense, she was the ultimate barren, women, barren woman because God told her that you will conceive of a child without natural means. Now, if you were told that today, you'd say there's a 0% chance of that happening. But God uses this in some sense, barren womb of, of, of Mary to bring his son to this world to do and accomplish a greater and new exodus. So this virgin birth testifies to us that salvation is utterly and completely a divine work. So, as we can see, this doctrine is not arbitrary. There's a lot of theological significance that, that makes sense when we think of it and situate it within the rest of the story of Scripture. So we confess. We confess together that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Well, question 36 asks, how does this benefit us? How does this benefit you? And what does the answer point us to? Our salvation. What more specifically? Justification. He's our mediator. He's our mediator. And that idea is, is significant, especially in light of the historical context where um, um, Rome's view, where, where Mary is co-mediatrix, co-mediator with, with the Son. We confess, note, Jesus alone is our mediator. We, we don't have to... You know, we can acknowledge Mary and esteem her, and we should, that she was a major player within, within God's plan of redemptive history, like many other uh, humans that God used to continue uh, his, his work. But she was a fallen human, just like you and me, and was in need of her son's saving grace, like you and I are in need of, of Jesus' saving grace. 
So Jesus alone is our mediator, and this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5. He says there's, there's one God and there's one mediator, right? one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So Christ is our mediator, and what, what does he specifically do as our mediator? According to question answer 36. He covers us. With what? Notice that language, he covers us with his innocent and perfect holiness. Now, to understand this, we have to, again, be reminded of our predicament, that God, you know, boys and girls, you can think of God requiring us all to have a million dollars to enter his everlasting kingdom. But the problem is that we're sinners, and we're in debt, a million dollars in debt, and we have no way of earning any positive money. We'd rather increase our debt every day. That's the problem that we have. And so, of course, Jesus' death wipes away that debt, satisfies God's wrath for our sins, cleanses us as far as the East is from the West. So we're brought to zero. And then Christ's life of righteousness, which is then credited to us, brings us that positive righteousness, that million dollars that we need to enter God's everlasting kingdom. So we rightly confess that we need this double imputation. We not only need our sins to be forgiven, but we need positive righteousness, as we even considered this morning, imputed to our account. We need Christ's track record of perfectly rendering to God the things that are God's given to us. Now, when we think about that, that positive righteousness which is given to us, sometimes I think we can tend to think of it merely in his external actions. We read the Gospels and, and come across all of these wonderful stories about G how Jesus was a good neighbor, how he perfectly did the will of God. And we think of his righteousness in external terms. We have to remember what God's law calls us to. Psalm 24 says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The hill of the Lord is a reference to God's rest, God's heavenly throne room. And the psalmist says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. What that tells us is that we don't, we, we, we need both clean hands and a pure heart. Just having clean hands is not enough. Now, of course, this is a package deal. But we also need a pure heart, which means we need a holy disposition. Think of Jesus' analogy about the root and the fruit. The good fruit of, of clean hands necessarily proceeds from a good root, a pure heart. And therefore, bad fruit necessarily proceeds from a bad root, a bad heart. And so what's credited to us in our justification is not just his clean hands, but also his pure heart, his holy disposition. Jesus was the only person who was conceived apart from sin. Psalm 51.5 says, David confesses after he sins with, with Bathsheba, he says, In sin, my mother conceived me. All of us, by virtue of our, our union with Adam, we are conceived in sin, which means we have a disposition and natural inclination towards sin and evil. We're born with a bad root, and thus we naturally bear bad fruit. Jesus was the only person who was born with a holy disposition. He was born with a pure heart, conceived with a pure heart, and thus had that natural inclination towards uh, producing good fruit. And so then what's credited to us in our justification is not just his clean hands, but his pure heart. And so your righteousness, which you trust in to stand before God, begins at Jesus' conception. It was necessary that he was conceived apart from sin. Adam was not his father. God was his father. And thus he was conceived apart 
from sin. You know, Hebrews 12, verse 14, the uh, author of Hebrews says, you know, strive for the holiness, the holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. And um, one New Testament scholar says that this holiness that the author of the Hebrews is speaking about is not a holiness that's graded on a curve, a spectrum. This is a, a perfect holiness, a holiness that's black or white. Either you have it or you don't. And so when the author of Hebrews says, strive for the holiness, the holiness without which no one shall see the Lord, this isn't, uh, you know, I'm 70% there. Either you have it or you don't. So this is the holiness which we receive from Christ. The holiness which began at his conception. And therefore, the reason we have confidence to stand before God the Father is because Jesus' clean heart and, or pure heart and clean hands have been credited to your account. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of this doctrine for us as sinners. And so remember the, the, the context of this doctrine in our Heidelberg Catechism, the doctrine of true faith. We, boys and girls, adults, we all are called to know this, assent to it. This really happened. Jesus came into this world supernaturally. But most importantly, we are called to personally rest and trust and receive Christ as our only mediator, whose holiness covers my sin, your sin, and thus is the only reason why you can stand before God. Let us pray.